Welcome to episode 20 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today, we are going to be doing another episode in our Writing Mechanics series, um, and this one is going to focus specifically on structure, the structure of a novel. Yeah, we. I mean, because we've done podcasts about reading and tropes and um we you know obviously we've done publishing uh but you know we wanted to focus a little bit more on the writing side about the the craft of writing itself and storytelling mm-hmm. so that's what we wanted to focus on in this sort of writing mechanics series so structure <laughs> um it is a pretty broad topic Kelly and I were sort of discussing it beforehand and we were just trying to think about how we wanted to approach this topic for you guys But for me, when I'm reading a book, it is crucial that the story be well-structured and well-crafted in order for me to enjoy or even finish it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is something, too, I remember back in high school um, in my English classes studying those diagrams of like like a plot diagram of a plot arc for a novel. And it basically, you know, there's like a flat line and it's exposition and then your conflict is introduced and from the point of conflict, it goes up kind of like as a, like a sharp incline. Slope. Yeah. <laughs> and that's your rising action. And then the peak of that slope uh, is your climax. And then um, there's your falling action or your denouement. Uh, where the peak comes back down, and then a flat line again for your resolution. So I don't know how ubiquitous that was, studying that in high schools. I don't know if other people are familiar with that, but I definitely remember that um, from when I was, you know, growing up. And that is still pretty much applicable as a general, solid, classic plot structure. Yeah, I mean... For me, we we had those charts and stuff like that. Usually it was in conjunction with plays more than actual books. True. I think that's like Aristotle had all these like rules and whatever that, you know, plays were supposed to adhere to. Um, but yeah, I did study that too. And that is a very general, I think if you look at all these sort of plot charts that you would see online, you know, everybody sort of draws up their own version of it. Ultimately, every story comes down to having a beginning a middle, and an end. Um, That's really, you know, that's what I want. I want a sense of a beginning, a sense of a middle, and a sense of an end. And all those charts and graphs that you see that are charting the course of, of the tension in a novel still kind of break the book up into those points. Um, so, So let's kind of break these down a little bit. The beginning of a book, obviously the setup the middle of a book where I feel like everybody gets fuzzy and it can sag and, and doing this, uh-huh. um, I, in to sort of get around the kind of sagging middle, I wrote about this in a post for a uh, pub crawl where I sort of broke down some of these kind of like the inciting incident. Uh, I broke down the midpoint for me. 
The middle of a book is where you actually learn what the point of your book is. Mm-hmm. I think. And in, in fact, if a book doesn't have a point by the middle, I, I tend to actually not finish them because of course you can give me a really great beginning, but if you can't prove to me that you can develop and expound upon that beginning, then I'm going to lose interest. Mm-hmm. And of course the end is where you wrap everything up and you resolve all the sort of story elements and plot elements that you've introduced. So that's the very basic shape of any story all stories that you can that you find that we tell each other around the campfire movies television books fairy tales etc mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and i think the middle is really well i mean i guess maybe we should start with the beginning rather than jump ahead to the middle so let's start with the beginning um of a book in terms of structuring it what are some of the things that the beginning of your story should do or should accomplish well, we've talked about this before about inciting incidents and mm-hmm. your your the moment your protagonist gets personally involved in what happens. Beginnings are set up. Mm-hmm. Set up for me. I'm a pantser. I tend to have set up pretty well established. It's anything beyond the setup that I start to go like I don't know what I'm doing. Um, but to have a good beginning, you need a who. You need a what. <laughs> A when? I think that's it. You need those three. You need a who, mm-hmm. a what, and a when. So we can look at it that way. You need your main characters. You know, you can, of, of course, have more than one. Um, you need a premise, the what. Mm-hmm. You know, what's the situation that they're in, and how is that going to change? Mm-hmm. And the when is really kind of setting, I suppose. You can call it that way. So you need a characters, premise, and a setting. Mm-hmm. That's really your setup. Um, yeah, those those usually come really easily for me. <laughs> <laughs> They're the first things that I think of. Mm-hmm. They um, it's it's like you just get a whole bunch of people in a room and just figure out what happens from there. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that's that's what I need in the beginning. What about you? Yeah. I would agree with that. Um, you know, it is largely set up. I think for me. The thing about beginnings is that beginnings of stories are the reader's brief glimpse into the world as it was before everything is about to change. Because that's, you know, the inciting incident. The whole point of telling your story is that everything is about to change. However, you know, your character's life may have been going up along until this point this is the turning point. Your story is beginning because something is going to change. Something is going to happen to the town, to the person, to the world, to the whatever that is going to irrevocably change everything that came before. And so your setup is briefly establishing the reader with this is how things were before. This is how things are now so that you have a baseline to understand all the changes that are going to that are to come. Yeah, the a really well-constructed beginning gives you just enough of what the life was like before, before everything changes, but not too much. Mm-hmm, exactly. We don't want to spend too much time there because everything's about to change. So <laughs> I don't want to spend all this time there, but I want enough of a sense of it so that the change has impact. I think a lot of beginning writers sometimes struggle with finding 
the place to start their story? Like, where does their story begin? That's honestly the question some people can't seem to answer. Where does your story begin? In the case of Winter Song, for example, where my story begins is when the protagonist's sister, against the protagonist's wishes and advisement, eats basically eats forbidden fruit. That's where the story begins. That's really what invites the kind of the supernatural into their lives. That's where the story began. That's where I began the story. And how did I decide on that? To be completely honest, I just did because <laughs> mm-hmm. it felt right. Um, and I do a lot of that when I write, when I, I, it comes instinctually. And then I, if I try and describe it to people, I could probably come up with a methodology for you, but you know, finding the moment where the story begins, it feels a little bit like a, I don't know how many of you guys are musicians, um, but you know, music songs all have rhythm and the, where you want to start your story is on the downbeat before the music begins. Mm-hmm. If you guys aren't musicians, I'm incredibly sorry. I'm not quite sure how else to describe it in in another <laughs> dimension that way. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's basically the the breath you take in before the song starts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's where it's the story on, you're you're on the cusp of something. You know, it's it's that it's that intake of breath. It's that you know moment before you take the step forward. You are on the brink of something. Um, and so, and part of that being on the downbeat or on the brink or on the cusp means that very quickly you're going to arrive, like you're going to get things moving and get mm-hmm. things started. And so we just need that little, that little moment, um, in the beginning to really set the tone of, okay, we haven't started, we haven't started, and now we've started. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of your first story beat. Um, if we want to put it that way, I mean, before we continue, let's sort of def- define these story beats because I'm sure, I mean, I've talked about it on Pub, Pub, Pub Crawl and uh, our alum, Janice Hardy, has talked about them. There are plenty of websites and books that talk about these so-called story beats, famously Blake Snyder's Save the Cat. Um, there's a lot of, you know, talk out there about what story beats are. Mm-hmm. So I guess, why don't we try and define what story beats are for our listeners? Because the the consensus, (laughs) (laughs) I feel like people know what they are instinctively, but then when they try to define them, it gets lost. Yes. Yes, I agree. I I know what a story beat is, and yet I have a very difficult time articulating a definition. I can identify them when I see them, but it's hard to, to come up with a definition that you can give to other people. <laughs> I know. For me, it comes back down to the music analogy. Mm-hmm. You know, music has rhythm. Speech has rhythm. Everything that we do actually has rhythm, whether conscious or unconscious. And storytelling, like anything else, has its rhythm. And the sort of beats it throughout it are the story beats. You know, over time, we've we've named them various different things, but the sort of Beats are the kind of stepping stones or the milestones and stories that people reach, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But that's what keeps the rhythm and pace of a story going. I think that's the only real way I can define what a story beat is for people. They're the the. It's the rhythm of a story. It's the rhythm of a book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, if you think you know story beats, you could even think of them as like they're the heartbeats. They're mm-hmm. that 
you know, I think a lot of times they, story beats tend to deal with the emotional thread of your story, although that's not exclusively true. They can certainly, um, you know, sway into other things and crisscross and, you know, get really complicated. But, um, you know, it's kind of like if you think of it as the heartbeat of your book, it's that steady um, rhythm. So we've defined the inciting incident and the moment your your protagonist gets involved in the story is sort of the story beats that go in the beginning of your book or the first act, if you choose to think of your book structured that way. A lot of people do structure their book in acts, uh, first act, second act, third act, but not everybody thinks of their, their work in that way, and that's perfectly fine, as long as your book has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So... When you transition from the beginning to the middle, let, let's talk about that. Do you think there is something that clearly delineates a beginning from the middle? I do. I think um, the thing that clearly delineates the beginning from the middle is the moment when the protagonist is... Um, is is engaged with the conflict. There's no turning back. The protagonist has, you know, either made a choice that's going to set them on their new path or circumstances have brought them to a place where the choice has been taken from them and this is just now, um, you know, what's going to happen. I feel like there's always a moment, you know, when the conflict is introduced where the protagonist is not yet fully engaged. And I think that that engagement of the protagonist is the moment that we transition into the middle of the story. Yeah. I think for me, the, the sort of where the beginning ends and the middle starts is when the stakes get raised. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, because, you know, the moment the protagonist gets personally involved um, can in fact be that point where the stakes get raised, but it could also be different, you know. Mm-hmm. Let's let's go back to the Hunger Games, for example. That book isn't delineated into acts for you, but the transition from the beginning to the middle of the book is when Katniss arrives at the capital. Right. And the games begin. And she's training for the games, rather. She's being coached. Um, but she's moved from one world to the next. To the next. And it's... And yeah. the stakes have been raised. You know, she's moved from District 12 and the stakes have been raised. So for me, that kind of delineates the beginning from the middle of the book. Mm-hmm. So then let's talk about the middle. This is a really difficult part for a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts about the middle, too. I, ooh, I feel ooh, like, tell me. Tell me. Um, well, so you mentioned earlier, um, you know, the sagging middles and that, you know, you can sometimes have a great setup and the inciting incident is interesting and suspenseful and you get, you know, all involved in this beginning part of the book and then you're reading and you're reading and you're reading and either nothing's happening or things are happening but you don't really care and you're just like trying to flip to get to the point in the book where something happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the time in... I've found in those cases, if I'm reading something and I'm desperate to get to the point where something happens, something doesn't happen until the climax. 
And then right. the end of the book, you know, it's like right. uh, the whole middle is just there to like stall until we get to that climax. And then the climax happens really quickly and there's a lot of action and there's a lot of drama. And then we, you know, resolve it or don't if it's a series and, you know, whatever. But but there's a lot of like just dead weight and space and treading water that happens in the middle of the book. And, Twilight. <clears throat> yeah. And lo- I mean, lots of books, like a lot. Those, and that's for me. Those are my do not finishes. It's when I'm reading and reading and reading, and I'm like, I'm asking myself, why am I still reading this book? Like, what? Mm-hmm. Nothing is ever going to happen. I'm so bored. It's like I dread, like getting to the evening when it's supposed to be my reading time. It's supposed to be something I look forward to, and yet I'm like, oh god, this is. I don't want to like read this book. <laughs> um, <laughs> And here, I think the, I think the problems as for why that happens in books are varied and many. Um, I think that, like you said, people just don't know what to do with the middle. I feel like they know what their conflict is and they know what their climax is going to be. And they think that they just have to bide their time until the, the, they've moved the plot pieces in place where they can instigate their climax. Um, and that's, that's not how you should write a middle. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. not, we have all read books that are all nighters that you cannot put down that are page turners that are, um, you know, you read them all in one sitting, you stay up way, 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 way late, even though you have to work or go to school in the morning, you don't care. You have to keep reading. Um, those are books with successful middles. Those are books where the stakes are continuously raised, where things, um, are constantly moving forward, where everything that happens on the page feeds into, you can think of it as like little tributaries that are feeding into the main river of the plot. Everything somehow, um, you know, feeds into this main, um, plot thread, you know, and the tension just mounts and mounts and mounts and mounts. And at that point, the climax is inevitable. The climax isn't something that just, it's the most exciting part of your story. And so you stick it near the end to have all the excitement there. And then, you know, you resolve it. The climax should be, (laughs) I mean, I guess we're a clean podcast, so I will, (laughs) I'll get away with that. I'll ignore that analogy that I was going to make, but the the climax should be a, like a continuous mounting tension until the tension is so great that it breaks, that mm-hmm. something has to give because the pressure can no longer be contained. Um, and so your middle should not be boring because your middle should be that constant mounting of tension. Yeah, for me, as I'd mentioned before, the midpoint is the point of your book. It tells me what I'm reading for, why I'm reading. So if we said in the beginning is the who, the what, and the when, the middle is your why. The middle is the characters and the reader figuring out why. Mm-hmm. You know, the point. The, um, the example that I had used, usually in the midpoint, everything kind of, not everything, but things get revealed that reveal the point of the book for you. For example, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer slash Philosopher's Stone. <laughs> I love that you always add that, well, that because correction in there. <laughs> I know, because the Philosopher's Stone is a thing. 
Yeah, you know, I know. it's an actual thing. So it, it bugs me. Anyway, the the midpoint of that book is actually when Harry, Ron, and Hermione figure out what it is. Fluffy is guarding in Hogwarts. What is mm-hmm. hidden in Hogwarts? It's the Philosopher's Stone. That's the midpoint of the book. You have figured out the why. That's, you know, the why of this book, the point of this book. That's what, you know, that's what the mystery was. And now when you move into the end, it's you, you, the question you want to be asking and answering is the how, how do you resolve the why? Um, but you know, sticking with the middle, the other example that I used in the pub crawl post was in Pride and Prejudice. The midpoint of that book is when Lizzie reads the letter from Mr. Darcy, where he's explaining his actions to her. Uh And that really sort of is the, is the, the why of the book, the point of the book where she realizes that she has misjudged him and that her own pride has kept her prejudiced against him. So the midpoints are important. The middles are important for that reason. And I know a lot of people sort of think of, you know, the middle as kind of the bridge between the beginning and the end, but that's not true at all. At least it isn't for me. Um, so there's the middle of your book. The midpoint is the point. At some point, you're going to have to figure out the why. And then once you figure out the why of the book, that's when people start to plan the how to resolve the why. Mm-hmm. So do you think there is a defining point that moves a story from the middle to the end? I I think that's hard because I... F- I hmm. I think there should be. I don't know that I can think of. Um, a, a lot of the books that I'm thinking of lately kind of muddy that place. I think that the climax, um, or maybe not the climax itself, but like the last little bit leading up to the climax, and then the climax itself and all the fallout should be um, the end of your book, the final third of your book. Um I, and I know that this is really subjective and a lot of people feel different ways about this. I don't like rushed endings. I don't like it when I'm reading a book and the climax is like 20 pages from the end Mm -hmm. and it's like this breakneck pace, the climax happens, all this stuff happens and then blah, we're done. Um, I do like falling action. I like to see the fallout of the climax. I like to see, you know, some kind of resolution. It doesn't always have to be, you know, obviously if you're writing a series that you're not going to resolve, you know, some of the larger overarching issues, but I like some resolutions, some lingering questions, but I, I like to see that fallout. This huge thing has happened. And now, you know, what is going to happen Next, you know, if you think about the Hunger Games, if we go back to that, the climax of that is really sort of um, when they're both going to take the berries and Katniss is gambling that, you know, that the game makers will interrupt them. And they do. And they're rescued. That's kind of the point of the highest tension. And then we get this fallout where she realizes that it's not going to be that simple. She's not just going to get to walk away. There's a lot more sinister stuff at play. They finish out everything at the Capitol. They get onto the train and Katniss is forced to deal with the fact that she's returning to her old life, but she is now different. And how is she going to, you know, reconcile 
everything with PETA and with her, you know, how is she going to put back together the pieces of her life after what she now knows and has been through? Um, and there's quite a bit of time between when they take those berries and when the book actually ends. Um, and I, I like that. I think I almost want to argue that that's necessary, that you need to have that, um, that you need to give the reader the fallout from the climax because true cliffhangers, true cliffhangers where you are at the climax and then it, the story eventually cuts off it almost immediately after that, or sometimes in the midst of that, um, are, are, there can be no emotional satisfaction as a reader. Yeah. Usually cliffhangers make me throw books against the wall. Yeah. It's not fair. I understand why people do it. It works slightly better in television where the wait is significantly shorter for the next yeah, installment. Like <laughs> but even then it's really, it's, it's cheap because you are trying to ensure yourself a continued audience. Um, you know, people will come back because they quite literally have no resolution. They need to know what happened. Um, and I think it's a cheap trick. I prefer my endings. It, it, like, again, it doesn't have to wrap up every, anything. Even if it's a standalone, it doesn't have to wrap up everything. There can be some kind of lingering uncertainty there or things that are up to the reader to determine or interpret. But I, I want to know when, I've, when I come to the end of the book and I've finished the book and I'm going to close it, I want that sense of having completed something. I want to have an emotional satisfaction yeah, I mean, when we think about cliffhangers, or at least for me, I think a successful one is actually in The Empire Strikes Back, where that one definitely ends with, you know, Luke having realized that Darth Vader is his father. Spoilers, uh -huh. you guys. <laughs> Although I don't know <laughs> if anyone is spoiled by that revelation anymore. Um, and Leia has just lost Han. He's been frozen in carbonite. And yet, that's not where the movie ends. The movie mm -hmm. ends, you know, after Leia has rescued her brother and um, he's gotten healed and they're all recovering and everything. And you, it's leaving you with this sense that they're planning their next maneuvers. Lando and, and Chewie are off to the galaxy to figure out ways to rescue Han. So there's kind of, despite these sort of big revelations or twists that have happened in the plot, you still have emotional resolution at the end of that movie. And you would have needed it because there were actually three years between each of those original movies. The first one came out in 77, and then the Empire came out in 80, and Return of the Jedi came out in 83. So there was a significant amount of time between each of those movies. So you needed that closure. You needed that space to kind of decompress and, and take in all the things that you've learned. Now, for me, I do think that there is a delineation between the middle and the end. I think that that delineation, the lot, I think the reason a lot of people struggle with the middle is because a lot of character work has to happen in the middle, but not necessarily a lot of plot. Um, although, of course, plot has to happen in the middle. But when you're figuring out the point of your book or when you're the protagonist is trying to find the point of, you know, their quest or whatever, a lot of that is just discovering things. So, you know, there's not a lot of action. The point 
where the book transitions from the middle to the end for me is when the protagonist has taken all this information that they have learned post midpoint and then takes action. And that's when the ending begins. Usually in movies, the third act is, you know, for example, if it's like an action movie or in my case, Deadpool, I just watched Deadpool. Um, this is not a huge spoiler, but Deadpool's ex-fiance has been taken by the bad guy. So for me, and, and the whole middle of that book, or the, that movie, by the way, is you finding out about their relationship and what she means to him, and you get the emotional connection there. And it's it's still compelling, even though not a lot of action happens in it. Um, but the ending of the movie starts when she's been taken, and he takes all the stuff that he has learned about his enemy and prepares he gets all of this stuff and that's you know and then he goes to confront the villain at the at the final act i typically don't look at stories as with climaxes or not because i tend to think that gives people a a false sense of how tension works in a story um i don't actually think tension is a steady rise i think tension has sort of quick rises and a little bit of a dip and then another Mm -hmm. rise and a little bit of a dip so the kind of climax being the, the, the most amount of tension, where you place that in a book is ultimately up to the author. And it, there shouldn't be, at least in my opinion, there shouldn't really be a strict rules where that should fall. So, Yeah, I agree with you in that um, I, I, rather than the steady incline just going up, 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 I like it, you know, an incline and then a slight reprieve and a, a steeper incline and a slight reprieve mm-hmm. so that if you look at it, you know, it's like if you're looking at a graph over time, it's trending up, but there are, you know, still brief respites. Yeah. I mean, the reader needs that. They need the, the moments to take a breath. <laughs> um, at least that I do anyway. If a book is unbearably tense, I actually put them down um, mm-hmm. because it just it's too stressful for me to read. So that kind of rising tension and a little bit of a reprieve and the rising tension and a little bit of reprieve works for me. So I think that's mostly what we discussed about the middle. So let's move into the end of a book. Mm-hmm. Now, I will admit to you guys that the ending that endings are my weakest. <laughs> I am really bad with endings. Um, I'm really bad at wrapping things up and I don't know how to write an ending. So maybe Kelly will have more advice for me. <laughs> I don't, I've never written an ending of anything, so I don't know that I can help you from a writer's perspective, <laughs> but I mean, so if we talk about endings in general, I, well, I kind of went through, you know, that I like my endings to have, you know, some emotional resolution and things like that. Um, do you agree with that? Or are there other things that I didn't mention that you think make a successful ending when you're reading them in other books? Well, I think, I guess unless your book is like part one of a trilogy or whatever, if for example, your book is a standalone, I like endings to have a denouement, a long, not a long one necessarily, but I want emotional closure And I like it when books take time to give you that emotional closure. Um, So for me, like I said, if we've broken down, the beginning is the who, the what, and the when. The middle is your why. And the ending is your how. How does everything get resolved? That's generally why the most action is seen in the last third of a book. 
Um, I'm very bad at this. I'm very bad at the how. I'm really bad at plot. I'm, I'm pretty good with character development and I like discovering things about my characters, but when I actually have to give my characters things to do, I'm terrible at it. Mm-hmm. But endings are that. They're hows. Mm-hmm. Um, and what makes a good ending for me, as I mentioned, is the emotional closure. But what do I mean by that? I want a sense of things coming either to a full circle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want the sense of completion. So if um, a character is set out on a journey, I want them to reach that destination. If they have a quest, I want them to fulfill that quest. Or if they don't reach the, the end of their journey or if they don't find the object of their quest, for them to have discovered that that wasn't the point of what they were supposed to be doing all along. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of a thing. I want a sense of closure. Yeah. You know what I think does this really well, actually, again, is the Harry Potter books. All of the Harry Potter books, for, well, not all, the majority of the Harry Potter books end with the trio back on the Hogwarts Express going Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. back, which is also how the majority of the books start. You know, they start a little bit before they actually get on the train, but, you know, in that way, the structure is cyclical in that we begin on the train and we end on the train. But the beauty of having those books end on the train is that it gives both the reader and the characters moments to pause, to reflect on everything that we just went through over the course of the story. You know, we are acknowledging what has changed and what we're going to be facing going forward. Um, but it's a, it's a, you know, it's that moment of closure. It's that emotional, you know, obviously the Harry Potter series keeps going. And so it hasn't wrapped up everything. You know, sometimes we know Voldemort has returned and that is hanging over us as a cloud at the end of the book, but we're on the Hogwarts Express for the moment. We are okay. We have a chance to pause and ground ourselves and see where we are. The other thing I like about endings or what I like to see in endings is a sense that a chapter has closed and it sounds so cliche to say that, but there are no unanswered the un like the important questions have been answered i don't necessarily care about small unanswered mysteries um you know the like the big emotional questions have been answered i don't know if you guys have seen battlestar galactica um but a lot of people hated the ending of battlestar mm-hmm. galactica because it kind of doesn't answer any of the sort of plot questions mm-hmm. Well, I think Lost is the I was going to say that was the other one, too. <laughs> Lost answers nothing. Um, no. And the answers they give are actually somewhat unsatisfying. Yes. <laughs> but you still found emotional resonance in the finale of that show. Is that right? Am I remembering that correctly? Yes. I thought emotionally, it well, not, not every character. Um, I, I hated the way some of the other ones ended. But I think for a lot of characters, there is a sense of emotional closure. Mm-hmm. Um, for like Sawyer and Juliet and mm-hmm. for Ben and everything, of course, Ben being my favorite, as you guys yeah. found out from the love interest episode. But I thought there was a sense of growth and closure yeah. for a lot of those characters, if not all of them. And it's interesting because Lost is a, is a interesting one because I, I agree that 
they chose to go for the emotional resolution rather than the resolution of the actual plot or the actual questions that they had raised. Um, I disagree that it was effective. I did not, I was, I did not get emotional closure from that finale. Um, as a, as a dedicated watcher of that show, it was not emotionally satisfying for me and I was okay. And I will, I will also admit I was a person who wanted answers. I had specific questions about the island and about the events that happened there that I wanted explanations for that we didn't get. And even though I wanted that, I was okay with the idea that I wasn't going to get it, that instead it was going to be this emotional resolution of these people and their journey. Um, and I was on board for that to happen, but it that particular execution didn't work for me. Yeah, the execution wasn't that great at, like, at all. <laughs> I could say that about two-thirds of that show. The execution wasn't that great at all. Um, <laughs> My The reason I didn't want answers to the island was because every time we got concrete answers to the island, it made the island dumber. Well, I mean, at a certain point, yes. <laughs> it really did. I was basically, the the plot of the island got resolved with Jack basically pu- plugging up a bunghole. Well, the whole question of who the this black smoke was and the man in black and all that was dr- atrocious. That was horrific. And I love Alice and Janney with a fierceness. And yet her, her, the character that she played in the final like two episodes of that show is like the mother of good and evil Jacob and the man. Yeah. Like the whole thing was, I mean, it was, it was excruciating. It was horrific. That mm-hmm. if we ever want to do a podcast on plot and structure, we should just like recap lost and just go <laughs> to a lost podcast. I haven't, you know, I haven't rewatched that show. I wonder if time has softened my stance against it because I, I thought that the first two seasons of Lost were excellent. And then the third season of Lost was, what is this? What am I watching? Why are they having sex in polar bear cages? This is awful. Um, and I stopped watching the show in the third season until they have that huge reveal at the end of the third season. And I was like, well, fine. (laughs) That was an amazing reveal. Because yeah. I did not see it coming. A lot of people did. I know David was like, oh, yeah, it was totally obvious. And, and no, it completely shocked me when that happened. So, but anyway, but so Lost is a great example of <laughs> different kinds of endings and how they may or may not work. <laughs> Serial fiction is going to be a little bit different, I think, than a novel, which is kind of a mm-hmm. beginning, a middle, and an end, as we said. Serial fiction. In, in the case of television, and, and specifically in the case of American television, they have a beginning, they have a premise, and then they kind of have to keep on spinning it out and drawing it out and drawing it out and kind of holding off the end because they want more seasons. So I, I, I have my thoughts about the way American television works. And this is actually why I think Avatar The Last Airbender is such a great show, because one of the creators said in an interview... You know, they were very adamant from the start with Nickelodeon that it was just going to be three seasons. It was going to be a beginning, a middle, and an end. Because Brian Konitzko said, you know, when someone asks you, I have the greatest story in the world to tell you. And you're like, great, now what is it about? And he's like, it has no end. Do you want to hear that story? Because I don't. Um, So endings, you know, you want the sense of closure. I think that's really important for me 
when something has an end, it needs to have emotional closure, even if plot uh, plot things are not necessarily mm-hmm. resolved. So, uh, um, I mean, we've talked about examples of that and, uh, like, really good examples of well-structured stories, how we like stories to be told. Um, is there anything else we can cover in our structure that you want to talk about now? I think in terms of an overview, we've pretty much hit all the major things. Yeah, I mean, we're giving really broad general advice because you, I mean, every book is going to be different. Every writer is going to approach these sort of general story beats in their own way. Um, and even if your book doesn't adhere strictly to any of these quote rules that we've laid down, it doesn't mean that your book isn't going to be compelling or good. Um, a couple of my favorite books don't really have the structure. For example, Anne of Green Gables is very episodic. It just mm-hmm. kind of is like one adventure Anne has, and then the next one, and then the next one, and the next one. There's no real sense of rising tension mm-hmm. in any of those books. And yet I love them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess if you broke it down, within each adventure there is a sense of rising tension and, you know, like it's like a bunch of mini stories. And Anne of Green Gables is kind of like a collection of short stories, but in novel form. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's really kind of a long character study about Anne mm-hmm. as a character and, and how she grows and changes and everything. So, um, but that doesn't stop me from loving those books because I really love all of, well, I love one through three, five, <laughs> and Rilla. <laughs> I tend to agree. <laughs> um, so yeah, you don't have to stick to these, but I think when you dissect some of the most commercial properties, you will find that they kind of stick to this rhythm, you know, because it is a human rhythm that we adhere to or a western rhythm, we'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. Eastern storytelling can be a little bit more could be a little bit different. Like a non-Western narrative can be a little bit more meandering and slow. Like if you watch the films of Hayao Miyazaki from Mm -hmm. Studio Ghibli, the structure tends to be a little bit different. It doesn't mean that they're less compelling, but, you know, in the U.S. where both Kelly and I were born and raised and the books that we read and the market that we're familiar with, this is the story shape and beat that is familiar and comforting to us. Mm Um. You know, so I think the first three Harry Potter books do this very well. I think the original trilogy of Star Wars does this extremely well on both a micro and macro level. Like each of those films has a distinct beginning, middle and end with a conflict that they need to resolve in each one. But the story, Mm -hmm. those three films as a whole function as a beginning, a middle and an end for that narrative. So I think Star Wars is a great example uh, I've mentioned Avatar. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that we can think of. Not off the top of my head. I mean, I'm, I know they exist. Yeah, I think The Hunger Games, I think, is kind of an interesting exa- example for me because I don't necessarily think that they adhere very strictly to the structure that we've laid out. I agree. Because there are things that she does in every book that I didn't expect. And here's the the credit I will give Suzanne Collins. She does the thing I least expect in every single book. Mm -hmm. 
For example, in Catching Fire, the thing that I least expected was for her to go back into the games. Yeah. Yeah, I was completely convinced that she was going to be a mentor and have to mentor someone else through the games and we'd like see that side of it, but nope. (laughs) Yeah, no, and I completely expected that book to be like her being much more involved in the rebellion side of things as opposed to being the figurehead and the, Mm -hmm. you know. And then in Mockingjay, the thing I did take for granted that she pulled the rug out from under me was Peta's love for Katniss. And she took that away, too. So there's something really interesting that Suzanne Collins does in each of those books. She really does the thing that I least expect her to do. Mm-hmm. How successful are they? I'm not sure. <laughs> um, I, You know, that's still kind of, I think, up in the air for me. I think those books are very powerful, but whether or not they're extremely, whether or not they're completely successful is kind of still up in the air for me. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about an ending that I did not find emotionally satisfying. That would be one of them. Yep. Yep. Although I've heard other things and it's really, it's kind of like the ending of Lord of the Rings, even though actually the ending of Lord of the Rings is far more more emotionally satisfying than the Hunger Games. But really it's a portrait of a young woman with PTSD. And I once I, I I also have a friend that um, has that interpretation and explained it to me and defended it very passionately and it it did make me um, have more appreciation for the ending as written um, that I did not have prior to that conversation and yet no I know. <laughs> Uh, she really is the only heroine of a book, YA or adult or otherwise that I've read, that has PTSD and isn't, quote, cured. Mm-hmm. She lives with it, and she will be living it with, with it for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, some people did not like that ending. I, Of course, that's not the ending I would have liked on a purely selfish level. Right. Um, but I think it is fitting, especially when you look at The Hunger Games as a whole and what those books are actually about. Yes. So, I think that's what we've got to say on a general overview of structure. Um, I'll put some links in the show notes uh, to, you know, some other websites and people who talk about story beats and plotting and things like that. And, you know, take this all with a grain of salt from me since I'm a pantser and I had to do all this kind of (laughs) retroactively. Um, So we'll put all all those links there. So... um, we can move on to our other segments. Yeah. So what are you reading lately? I am rereading all of Maria V. Snyder's. I think they're called the, actually it's called the Soul Finders. Um, but it's Poison Study, Magic Study, Fire Study. Um, I had read those three, but in mm-hmm. there were two other books in the series that had come out that I had not read. So... I'm kind of rereading them at the moment in anticipation of the the two newer books that I haven't read yet. So that's what I'm reading. What about you? I am reading Illuminae. Uh, oh just, yes, yeah. It just came in from the library. Um, it's I think it's going to be, it, but the library with having you know that be the exclusive way that I read things. It's either feast or famine. You know, either everything I have on hold is going to take forever to get to me, or it's all going to start coming in at once. So I've got like five books right now from the library, but that is the most recent one that just came in. 
Out um, of curiosity, are you reading that in print or e? It's ebook. And I understand I understand that there are probably some differences. Um I'm not sure what I I have not even started it yet. I just downloaded it um when I got the notification that uh the ebook was available. And so I haven't even, you know, begun, but I understand that the presentation of the book, the way that the story is told to you is through various, it's not just like a novel where you're just reading it. Mm -hmm. There's like different, you know, bits of information that are communicated in different ways. And, um, I think it's slightly different in the E version than the print version, or I don't know if I made that up or not or what. I'm just curious how it would be done in an ebook version, whether it basically these elements are JPEGs, because you can't necessarily do it so strictly with HTML, which is what most ebooks are. This is getting mm-hmm. to like really geeky stuff. So I was just <laughs> kind of curious. because um, I also listen to it on audio and they have um and they're slightly different, the audiobook and the the print book. Um, but I really like Illuminae. Of course, Amy is a pub crawl alumna. Mm-hmm. Um, this book is really fantastic, you guys. And also, my name is in it. <laughs> Ooh. It's an Easter egg. And this, um, I don't know if you'll find it necessarily. So we'll see. We'll see if you I'll find look. it. I'll have to let you guys know if I find <laughs> JJ's name in there. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a little bit... I've described... I've, I've pitched it to people as... Um, House of Leaves meets Battlestar Galactica, that kind of collection of ephemera mm-hmm. is really what the style of that book is. But if even if you take that all away, it's just like a really excellent science fiction novel. So Yeah, I'm excited about it. Yeah. So what are you working on? I have not really worked on fiction in the last week at all. Um, I've had, you know, some ideas about my YA, but I haven't spent uh, any time doing any actual writing on it. Um, I've been working a little bit more on uh, my professional website. (laughs) (laughs) I am, you know, as it says in the introduction, uh, I am a freelance editor. So I have been working um, with various publishers, um, doing some freelance editing for a while now. And I am uh, trying to expand that a little bit. And so I was like, I really should have a website. <laughs> so <laughs> I've been working on that. I'm trying to come up with, um, you know, some content that I can put up there. Um, and so that's really been the only thing that I've been working on in terms of any kind of output or writing or anything like that. What about you? Um, I haven't done fiction writing as of right, as of yet right now. Um, I'm also working on sort of more career type stuff. Um, I, I did an interview with Jen Baker of the podcast Minorities in Publishing. Mm-hmm. So I did that. When I, does that come out? Is that out already or? No, not yet. Um, I'll let you guys know when the link goes live. I think it probably won't be for a couple weeks. Um, I'm doing a review for Disability and Kid Lit. And I'm also working on my newsletter that I'm going to send out in March. Um, sort of kind of little extra content about winter song. If you guys are curious, um, I've, and, um, I had written a kind of an origin story blog post on my, on my website. And I kind of talked about, I had sent my friend what I called the long shitty synopsis. So 
I will I will be including the long shitty synopsis in in that newsletter if you guys oh. are curious. Um, I also wrote up a post on world building, which this could be another episode topic we can cover. But world building, like so much else of writing for me, is very instinctual. So when I try and go back and describe how I've done something for people, I'm just like, I just do. Yeah. It just it just happens. I, that's kind of why I'm a terrible teacher. Um, you know, like in like in junior high, I was. This is the last time I was good at math, y'all. Uh, in junior high, I was very good at algebra, and you know, so because of this, my math teacher was like, you know, why don't you tutor some of the kids that are having some trouble? And I tried. I really did. I tried my best, but they're like, oh, how do you approach this? And I'm like, I just do. <laughs> Yeah, I just do it. I just do it, and it just happens, and it's right. I don't know how else to explain this to you guys. It's the last time I was good at math, though, so, you know, (laughs) don't think like I'm a math genius. There's a reason I chose publishing. All right, so have we been enjoying any other media? I am just kind of doing a lot of rewatching of things. I think I mentioned previously that I'm kind of dipping a toe back in West Wing. Um, I am, of course, continuing to watch Avatar, which we've mentioned briefly on here before. Um, I have not yet, but am strongly considering watching Dawson's Creek for the first time. <laughs> so... <laughs> So let me explain. So Forever YA um, has a segment that they do on their website where they do rewatches. So they did Gilmore Girls. Um, I think they did uh, Veronica Mars at one point. But basically, you know, they pick a television show that is young adult adjacent or relevant uh, in some way. And they watch the entire thing and they post recaps um, of each episode as they go through it, usually with um, rules for a drinking game so that you can have fun as an adult watching these uh, teen shows. And so I remember I really loved their Gilmore Girls recaps. I love that show. And they've started doing one for Dawson's Creek. And I have never actually watched this show. I just, it, I couldn't get into it when I was an actual teenager and it was airing. Um, and I never really watched it since. I know the basic plot such as it is. I mean, I know the general romantic subthreads and everybody who sleeps with everybody else at various points and so on and so forth and who ends up with who at the end. Um, but I've never actually sat down and watched like a complete episode of the show. And I'm kind of tempted because I'm sure it's ridiculous and I'm sure it is probably even like ridiculous slash bad rather than ridiculous slash good, but it, it sounds tempting to me. <laughs> so I haven't begun it yet, but I'm thinking about it. Oh, okay. <laughs> JJ is not on board. <laughs> I've actually never seen Dawson's Creek either, so I'm not going to condemn before I've seen anything, but I'll be completely honest. I grew up you know, I was what, I guess in elementary school, uh, for most of the nineties and, you know, kind of in the early two thousands was when I was a a teenager and I just really wasn't into that kind of TV. Mm -mm. Um, you know, the, what were some of the other ones? I think like party of five. 
I didn't really watch that one. I did watch the first season of Felicity. I've with heard a, good things with about a that one actually. Fierce though. devotion because that was when um, Carrie, what is her name? Carrie, Carrie Russell. Russell. Thank you. I was like, I could not think of her name. She had hair like mine. And I'd never seen, <laughs> I'm not, like, I had never seen hair like mine on television. And now, of course, she has it straightened. And so it's a little sad for me. Of course, she still looks gorgeous. Um, but, you know, she has that wild, frizzy, crazy hair. And so I watched Felicity uh, pretty devotedly. Um, but I didn't watch a lot of television. Most of the shows from that era that I love, I actually saw years later not at the time that they were on. Yeah, the only ones I watched as they were airing was The X-Files. Now, The X-Files ran from when I was 8 to when I was 15. So um, that was the majority of my television watching life. Mm -hmm. And also Sailor Moon. So, and I watched, like, back in the day, Cartoon Network had this segment from 4 to 6 called Toonami. Mm-hmm. And the original lineup of Toonami that I remember when I was watching was Sailor Moon Reboot, which, if we want to talk about a show that I love that no one else seems to remember existed, uh, Reboot is one of them. Uh, Dragon Ball Z, and the the fourth show always kind of changed up a bit. Um, I think kind of in the earlier years, it was <laughs> The Real Adventures of Johnny Quest. Um which, again, this is a show no one else remembers, and probably for good reason, because it was terrible. But um, So, like, those are kind of the shows that I watched. I watched mostly cartoons. I watched, mm-hmm. you know, like, Gargoyles or Animaniacs. I really wasn't into the teen drama thing. Yeah. I didn't watch the... I watched my so-called life as it aired, and it was only, like, 13 episodes long, so that didn't last very long, but that show is amazing, which it I is. made you watch. Yes, when we were you roommates. made me watch it. <laughs> um, so I watched that and I, I was like 14 or 15 at the time and watched that. And other than that, though, I really didn't watch much TV, partly because I was just genuinely too busy. I did theater and show choir and all these other things. And so I just wasn't home. I was always out after school doing stuff. And then also partly it was like a deliberate affectation. Like I was too good to watch television, <laughs> which if, you know, 16 year old me could see me now where it's like, God, I love my Netflix subscription, <laughs> but all the shows from that time, you know, like I love Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I never watched Buffy until it was over. I love Gilmore Girls. I never saw Gilmore Girls when it was airing. You know, all the television that I watch or have watched has been binge watching after it's been made available online. <laughs> I think that's kind of the best way to watch some of these things. Yeah. It brings <laughs> out the flaws. I think yeah. flaws flaws that you wouldn't notice watching something week to week when you watch five episodes in a row. You're like, wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's see. What but, other media have I been consuming? Yeah. Um, I'm still finishing the Tannis podcast, which is... Well, we talked about Lost earlier. This one is hitting all of my Lost buttons. Um, the Black Tape, because this is a, a related podcast to one I mentioned before, The Black Tapes, which is what I had described as kind of the X-Files meet serial. This one is a bit more like Lost, where it's kind of this weird phenomenon, this entity called Tannis that moves around 
in the Pacific Northwest and has all these sort of associated phenomena with it. And maybe it's like a conspiracy and, you know, it's, so it's kind of lost in like, like that. Um, I have mixed feelings about Tannis. I don't know if it's as good as the black tapes. Um, cause I think they're trying to do a little bit too much, but I think, and there's like just too many things going on that sometimes I have to like go onto Reddit and just like look at people's recaps. Cause I can't remember any of the names that came up. I was like, who is this person? Cause like the most recent episode I listened to was like, if you know, this person I was searching for actually turned out to be this person. And I'm like, am I supposed to recognize that name? And I have to like go online and be like, did this person come up in an episode? And I just like completely missed it. <laughs> like, um, I basically replaced TV with podcasts is uh-huh. kind of what I've done with most of my life right now. But in addition to that, I'm kind of on a Cinderella kick. Um, I've mentioned before that Beauty and the Beast is my favorite fairy tale and it is, but for kind of looking back, I actually really also like Cinderella or at least I like a lot of Cinderella adaptations. Uh-huh. Um, Ever After. I really love oh, that movie. Such a great, great movie. So good. I love that movie. Um, there's a book by Gail Carson Levine called Ella Enchanted, which I love. I love this book. Um, and then Kenneth Branagh had done the live-action Cinderella with... Um, what's his face? Rob Stark from Game of Thrones as, as Prince Charming. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, this is the live action version of Cinderella. And I also really liked that too. I enjoyed it. It had, it has Kate Blanchett as the evil stepmother and she's great in yeah. it. She's so good. And also the costumes. Oh my God. The costumes are amazing in this movie. Um, so I just watched that really enjoyed that. And, um, or like, Rogers and Hammerstein Cinderella. Like mm-hmm. there are a lot of Cinderella adaptations that I really genuinely love. And I never think of it as a fairy tale I particularly like, but but I just really love a lot of these adaptations of it. So I'm kind of on a Cinderella kick. Nice. That's all for this week. Next week we will be continuing with writing mechanics, uh, with a podcast episode about voice. Mm. As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. And we really appreciate all of you guys who have actually left us reviews, so thank you very much. Yes, every time we get one, I get so excited and I text JJ. Another Um, angel gets its wings. So thank you so much, those of you who have taken the time to do that. And I hope that uh, other listeners will do that in the future. Yay. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJ Jones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, the author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. 
Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.